everyone, and welcome to the Training Ground Podcast with your host, Kevin Barry. In this episode, Kevin is speaking with Danny Lowden. Danny is the strength and conditioning coach for men's and women's soccer at Gannon University in Erie, Pennsylvania. Today, they will discuss Danny's journey to the U.S. as a graduate soccer player, his thoughts on GPS, and his philosophy for off-season training programs. They'll also be talking about what is the single best exercise for hamstrings, why his players do not back squat, and what a typical day looks like for Danny. Danny, I appreciate you coming on the Training Ground Podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here, Kev. Thanks for having me. Good stuff. Can you tell me about um, how you ended up in the U.S. as a graduate soccer player? You know, most people I speak to, um, it's when they're 16 or 17, they decide to make that transition. But for you, you were a little bit older. Can you tell me um, kind of what steps you had before you made that decision and uh, where you ended up as well? Yeah, so I went to university back home in England at uh, Loughborough University. I was studying for my degree there in sport and exercise science. Always knew I wanted to go into soccer, so that was sort of a good first step to try and get into the professional or the collegiate setting and working with these athletes. Um, when I was studying for my degree, I actually didn't do as well as I was hoping for. I ended up with a 2-2. So for the Americans listening, um, first class degree is sort of the highest, 2-1. Next step down, 2-2 two is a little bit lower, and it keeps going down a little bit. Um, Two ones, pretty much the standard for getting into the professional setting. So obviously struggling to get into that setting, I ended up going into recruiting and working in recruiting for a little bit. Um, still with the goal of wanting to get into professional sports, but no, my degree wasn't quite good enough. I ended up realizing that I had to do a master's degree to sort of almost make up for the poor job that I did in my degree, I guess, would be the best way to say it. Um, so when I was playing semi-professionally back in England and working in recruiting, I reached out to a scholarship agency about coming home to America and they got me in touch with Mercyhurst University pretty quickly and got an offer from the head coach there to go and play. So that's how I originally came over, was to make up for my 2-2 in sport exercise science back at Loughborough, was to do better in the master's program and it allowed me to keep playing sort of a pretty high level setting at the Division Two level. Mm-hmm. Um, after that, it was pretty pretty interesting. I ended up graduating from Mercyhurst and going back home for six months, and almost falling back into recruiting again because I still couldn't find work. Um, I went through a few stages with a company in recruiting, and they called me up after the final stage interview and said they weren't going to be offering me the job. And about two or three hours later, the head coach who brought me over originally, called me up and asked if I had found work and if I hadn't done, I want to come back to America. So I ended up working out really, really well there. Mm-hmm. I had to go home again, almost fell back into exactly where I was before my degree. And I got lucky there. The head coach yeah. remembered me and called me over to come and work. Yeah, no, that's, a, that's a great story. Um, did you have any um, friends or anybody that you knew that was in America at the time or you just thought that was, you know, your best option? No, I knew absolutely no one here. I sort of, it was a little bit of a gamble. I knew people had done it before, but they'd all gone back to England. But I'm not opposed to a challenge, and I know that in order to further yourself, sometimes you need to step out of your comfort zone. So I ended up taking that sort of jump across the, uh, absolutely. the league. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, 
if if you have some advice, you know, for a kid that's considering a scholarship agency, um, just looking back now, um, what do you think kids should look at? You know, should would they be able to do it on their own, or or do you recommend going through an agency? I think you've got the time to do the research, then you can absolutely do it on your own. But it is a lot of legwork if you are going to do it on your own. Obviously, being on the coaching side of things, now you see a lot of people email you, and the time it takes to do a little bit of research on the school, find the coach's email, the assistant coach's email, email them all, put in the information that you need, but also let them know that you've done research on the school. Doing that for 20 schools takes a long time. Mm-hmm. If you have an agency, they can do that in 10 minutes. You give them the information, it's already out to 20 schools before you know it. So yeah. I think that's one of the benefits of the agency versus doing it on your own. But if you have the time to reach out or you know people, it's absolutely something you can try and do on your own to start with. Yeah, that makes sense. I think if you're like a graduate student and you know you're you're working full time or you have other responsibilities, it sounds like the agency is the best way to go. But if you're you know 16 or 17 and you're not working or you're not doing anything or you're not playing much, um, then going alone might be an option for some people. Yeah, definitely a little bit easier. Um, when I ended up getting into the agency, I was working full time, but also playing semi-professionally as well. So most of my days were spent traveling to work, being at work, traveling home from work, getting in my car and driving over to Liverpool, which is about 30 minutes away from my house and about 45 minutes from where I worked. So I drive 45 minutes to go and train, drive half an hour home. And by the time I get home, it's 10 o'clock at night and I need to eat and go to bed. Yeah. So I got to go over again the next day. That's, that's a tough, uh, tough day for sure. Um, so, um, you're obviously a goalkeeper, uh, or have been. Now you're still working with uh, soccer goalkeepers at the collegiate level. Um, what are some of the training misconceptions goalkeepers might have, or some you know old style goalkeeping coaches? I think one of the big conception, the misconceptions with goalkeeper training out on the field is that it needs to be complex, and needs to be novel and new and different. I think sticking to the basics is always going to be the best way to spend your time. If you do the basics right 99% of the time, you can go a lot further than someone who can pull off a world-class save, but they spill the ball, they don't catch it, they're not in good positions. Most of the time, they're going to make a lot more mistakes and you're just not going to get picked up just because of that. I think looking at basic hand position, set position, um, positioning in the goal, how to communicate with the defense, how to communicate with the midfield to organize, if you can do that consistently well, it's going to take you a lot further than diving around the field, making 30 saves in a row. And before you know it, you're 35 yards out from goal, trying to catch a ball that has no carryover into a game. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I see a lot of times um, some coaches that turn uh, goalkeeping sessions into almost fitness sessions. Um, You know, um, what are some of the training mistakes that people make um, as far as fitness goes or as far as uh, weight room exercises for strength conditioning, um, specifically with goalkeepers? I think it pretty much covers all positions when it comes to fitness. But I think it's starting to see a change away from the long-distance running. That's still something that you still see a lot of. And the research shows that it's just not as necessary as people think it is. You don't have to be out there running four or five miles a day every single day. To get fitter, you can get onto a field and do sprint work. You're going to get fitter, you're going to get quicker, you're going to reduce your risk of hamstring injuries. And it's going to translate into a game that's stop-start, change the direction a lot more than going out and running five miles. You need to be able to have that base, obviously, but at a certain point, you need to work on the other stuff, like the sprint work, and get your conditioning through there instead. 
Yeah. How do you have that conversation with coaches that might be a bit resistant to that idea or even players that feel like, you know, I'm not working as hard or this is not as difficult, you know, as it should be because I'm not running you know, for 60 minutes or 70 minutes straight? Um, I've been pretty lucky that the coaches I've worked with have been very, very receptive to it. So my whole time at Gannon has been, we should reduce the amount of long distance running and do more sprint work. And the mm -hmm. feedback's always been, okay, let's do it. And you just translated. Um, when I originally started in 2016, we had a lot more speed work in pre-season and integrating the ball and doing sprint work and things like that. And injury rates went down a lot. And the only real changes were pre-season and the warm-up. We made those two real changes to the sessions we've done. And injuries dropped significantly compared to what they were before. Obviously, there are other factors. The players were probably fitter, probably brought in players that have allowed us to get a good record last year and to elevate the program a little bit. But the warm-up and the sprint work has still been the determining factor in how we've done the fitness stuff. What's the key from there, yeah. yeah. So... Um, if you're taking away some of the longer distance running, um, I'm going to assume you don't have, you know, a two mile test or um, anything as far as distance. Do you have anything that you use for testing or evaluation to see where kids are at, whether it's um, pre-season or out of season as far as conditioning goes? We actually don't. We trust the players that they're going to do the fitness work in the off season. And when they come in, we know or we have a good idea of where their values should be. And we work back from sort of where we want them to be for a game, work back the distances over the weeks. So they, when they get their original preseason packet, they've built up over six weeks. And then the final two weeks of preseason, they can be hitting those higher numbers where we want them to be for games. And if they've not hit those numbers and they've not done the work in the off season, we tell them if the best case scenario, they're going to get left behind. Worst case scenario, they're going to get injured because they're not where they need to be. And if they don't take it on themselves, you see them start to drop down. You see them start to struggle a little bit more. So we put a lot of trust and faith in our players. We're going to be really fortunate that we're actually going to be implementing GPS fests this year. I think that's some of that. That is a great fundraising um, success, right? It's going to be unbelievable because now we can figure out exactly what they hit in games, and we can work back to the percentage point of this is the distance you need to be covering in speed work, in your moderate runs, in your long distance runs, and this is going to replicate where you need to be in a game or beyond the game so then we can last the 90 minutes and if we go 110 minutes, we can last that long too. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be a very, very big help to the program moving forward. Yeah. Uh, do you anticipate that being um, true yourself as a strength conditioning coach or um, interaction with sport coaches, you know? Um, who do you see handling that data and then implementing the changes? I'll be the one that's going to be running with the data and then feeding back to the head coach um, the information. I think especially early on it's going to be difficult, but as we get more and more familiar with it, we can block off drills and we can figure out how much work people need. And if we have people coming back from injury, they've not done enough. We know what drills we can do that are going to make them hit the numbers that we need them to be at. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. I think it'll be a great resource um, for your team down the road. Uh, when you're looking at, you know, this, this summer period, I always think it's the most important time for all the fall sports and um, especially soccer because, like you said, you're covering a lot of distance. If you don't come in prepared, you're going to get injured. Uh, but what would a summer program look like for a kid that's not on campus um, as far as conditioning goes or strength goes? Um, how many days would you like to set up conditioning? 
and um, you you know what would the focus be day to day? We normally do a five day, five or six day fitness program. Usually five, because I like to give them two days off. Mm -hmm. So we'll do a little bit of a longer, but in, still intermittent running on day one and day four. So Monday, Thursday, Tuesday, Friday would be a little bit more speed based. Um, Wednesday, Sunday will be off, and Thursday, oh sorry, Monday will be the intermittent running. Tuesday would be the speed work. Wednesday will be off. Thursday will be speed work. Friday will be the intermittent running again. Mm -hmm. Saturday would be the speed work. Sunday will be off. So we're constantly hitting the numbers and starting off at the longer distance stuff. So you're talking hundred meter runs, hundred and twenties and figuring out the total distance, you know, the total workload for the player. Mm -hmm. And then as the weeks progress, the workload slowly increases, but the distances decrease. So the speed will go up, the volume yeah. goes up. Um, yeah, just, the distance when the travel goes down per run. That makes sense. So um, if you're looking at, you know, May through August, um, as far as rest goes, uh, how would that change? You know, it's going to depend day to day, but are you going to look to have the guys more rested and have you know, higher intensity of sprints or less rested. So you're trying to build kind of that base. Um, early on, a little bit more rest, just because we know that their fitness level is going to be a little bit lower. And as we get closer and closer to season, we increase the amount of short running, the decrease the amount of time. And then um, if they come back early, rather than doing any real fitness work on the last week, I try and push them into small-sided games that they can run their own, so then they're getting that match sharpness, that change of direction, and they never fully get into running six, seven miles mm -hmm. because they get told to run it and do it. So then it becomes a lot more game-like, and their rest periods going down just because of the nature of the game. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's always been um, something that kids seem surprised at with, oh, a coach have been running all summer, uh, but uh, there, there hasn't been much of a change of direction component, and then they get into preseason and yeah, they're, they're fit, um, you know, on paper, but then they end up with groin soreness, hip tightness, you know, things like that. So I, I think, like you said, that change of direction component in um, the preceding weeks of preseason is key. Especially when you're looking at sort of things like hamstring um, pulls and hamstring strains as well. Um, I saw some research recently where it's looking at um, the activation of the hamstring on sprinting versus different actual isolated hamstring exercises. Mm -hmm. And the eccentric hamstring curl or Russian hamstring curl, whatever you want to call it, the activation is about 35 to 75% as much as sprinting. Yeah. So the best hamstring exercise is to go out and sprint. So mm -hmm. from a bullet hamstring, especially a soccer player or a basketball player or anything that can be short distance, high intensity, sprinting is the way to go because if you can progress it incrementally, you're going to strengthen the hamstring in a better way than doing any exercise in the weight room. Yeah, that's interesting because there are um, there is a company out there now that kind of pushes um, the the Nord board where it's um, where you're working hamstrings and it's supposed to be the cure all. But uh, what you're saying is that sprint training or you know you don't really need to make that financial investment and you'll actually be in a better place. Yeah, as long as you're progressing at at a good rate, like don't go from doing a thousand yards or a thousand meters a day to doing 1400 a day because the jumps can be too much especially if you're doing that week to week like start a little bit less than you think you need and work way up to what you think you need and then you can keep progressing beyond it mm -hmm. so a lot, a lot of people will they don't necessarily start 
early enough in the programming, they tend to start six weeks before, and then they're trying to hit what they think they need on week on six weeks out. But when they've had such a long rest beforehand, they're so far beyond, uh, so far below where they think they should be, and they struggle a lot with the sprints. And that's when they end up pulling, pulling the hamstring early on in preseason, having these little niggles, rather than starting two or three weeks earlier and just starting 20, 30% below those first values and building your way up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that for me, uh, back when I went to um, undergrad in, in America, that was a challenge because of what I was unsure of what the starting date should be. You know, We got the program and it was 12 weeks, but my season had finished early and I was wondering, you know, should I take an extra two weeks off, three weeks off? You know, um, should the program be, you know, eight weeks, 12 weeks? I've seen some programs that will even push 15 or 16 weeks for a summer program. So um, there are a lot of options out there depending on on your current fitness level, right? I think, especially with something like that, if your season finishes early or even if it finishes late, you still need that off-season. I think in America, America has built up this perception that sports need to be played year-round. So you see kids that are training or playing 52 weeks in a year. And the variety of sports there, but they need that rest to be able to recover from all the work they've been doing. So obviously once you finish a season or you finish a sport, if you're a high school kid, you might need that week, two weeks off where you either go incredibly light or you don't do anything for even a, a full week or two just to allow the body to recover. And then you start sort of start a little bit before where you want to be and go from there. I think that's probably the better way to go rather than taking a long break and jumping straight back into it or taking no break at all. Yeah, yeah. So you've seen a couple of freshman classes now um, putting collegiate strength conditioning uh, specifically with soccer. Um, what, what's the overall um, movement quality of these kids and what are their biggest challenges um, when they enter a collegiate program um, for the first time? I think I think a lot of it comes down to recruiting. So if you're recruiting a good player, odds are that movement patterns are going to be there because they built up the patterns and they know how their body moves. And if they didn't, that's they wouldn't be where they are. And I think as you get into lower quality players, that's where you see the movement patterns start to fall apart a little bit more. Or when you have a player that's constantly injured, even if they're a good player, you know that they're compensating somewhere. So their movement patterns aren't right and something needs to be fixed in the actual movement pattern as opposed to working on strengthening stuff. Um, with regards to the biggest thing they need to work on when they come into the college setting, a lot of people go from playing with their own age group, playing with 17-year-olds, 16-year-olds, 15-year-olds, to now I'm 18, I'm playing with 21, 22, 23-year-olds who've been in the game a lot longer and built up that resiliency and they need to put on a little bit more size and a little bit more strength and they might have to gradually build their way into the first team rather than being a really good player at high school. Things are going to come into a collegiate setting and let us light the world on fire. And then they're getting pushed off the ball and they're getting bullied because they just don't have that strength and that size to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was interesting that, you know, in our locker room, we're playing the same team, was that um, all, all the kids that are recruited at the collegiate level, they're the top players at the end of the day. So everybody has been a team captain or, you know, all state equivalent in America or all county and um, really well-developed players. But you're on a level playing field at best um, when you do enter that college setting. Yeah. 
Uh, there's never going to be a bad player recruited to go into a first team and to play and start every single time. Yeah, absolutely. Look good at that sort of lower level or your own age group. It's sort of why those age groups exist because if you put them in the 12s, play with them in the 15s, they've got no chance. Mm -hmm. They exist up until that age for a reason. But once you get past that age, it's almost like a fish out of water. You've got to sort of deal with them, figure it out as you go through a lot of the time. Figure it out is the key. Yeah. Um, as far as training recommendations go for, uh, whether it be an in-season or out-of-season player that does need to maybe put on some strength or put on some size, um, can you talk a, a little bit about just big picture about what the training program would look like um, as far as reps and sets and maybe just one or two go-to exercises? So some research that I've seen relatively recently, um, and it sort of gets the misconception that you have these strength ranges, the hypertrophy ranges or endurance ranges, is that no matter what the rep range is, you can build size. And you can build a hypertrophy base with any rep range. But people have this misconception that it has to be 8 to 12 reps. There's nothing wrong with hitting the heavier weights and the lighter weights occasionally because it's going to help you build up that strength as well. It's going to help you build up a little bit of endurance, but it's also going to have carry over into your hypertrophy range. If you're bench pressing, for example, 135 for a set of 8 or 10 or 12, you might not be able to progress it that much, but if you start training your 5 rep range and you're going a little bit heavier, and you get stronger in that heavier rep range, your set of 8, 10, 12 is going to get heavier as well, and all of a sudden you can progress a little bit more. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's something that when you're looking at hypertrophy, you need all aspects of you. You can't just focus on that middle range, although it does obviously help. Um, and then exercises that I think are really important, especially in the the soccer setting are going to be the Olympic lifts because I think it's such a power-dominated sport that you need to have that acceleration off the line. You need to be able to push people off the ball quickly and then get away from them. So I think things like hand cleans and dumbbell snatches to exercise that we always put into our program, especially early on, because I think they're a very good carryover into the sport. Mm -hmm. um, and then obviously you need the low body strength. Um, and we've, we don't back sport at all, which I think it shocks quite a lot of people that I don't back squat my athletes, regardless of, almost regardless of sport. I think there's something neater. But in soccer, we'll do uh, rear foot elevated split squats or Bulgarian split squats. They were main low body strength exercise. Um, I think it was Mike Boyle was looking or having a conversation about bilateral versus unilateral squatting. And through, from his experiences, when he was back squatting, and he said eight or nine out of 10 people were having back issues with the back squat early on in his career. So when he changed to a front squat, that number reduced to about four or five. And he was like, yes, it's gone down by a significant amount, but it's still too many. So how can we get away from even front squatting and they end up using the Bulgarian or the rear foot elevator split squat. And they also found that when they did that, not only did back issues go down, the single leg strength was greater than half of that bilateral strength. So if someone could back squat 400 pounds for one, they could single leg squat more than 200 pounds for reps. So they were getting more stress on the body, but they were also significantly stronger in that same movement pattern. Mm -hmm. So that tends to be our low body exercise. And it also helps with things like sprint pattern because when you get to the bottom of that squat, the knee can track a little bit more over the toe. And all of a sudden you've got a good shin angle that will translate into a sprint. Yeah. 
that makes sense. Um, at what point is somebody strong enough in that exercise then? Do you have any um, strength standards for um, soccer specifically, or are we just looking to progress over time? Because at the end of the day, uh, you know, the majority of kids aren't playing professionally, so we have them for four, maybe four and a half, five years for some kids. Yeah. I think there's some exercises where you can be strong enough. I think for the most part, strong enough is on a bench press, probably a body weight for a couple of reps. I think once you can do that, you've not necessarily maxed out what you can get from the exercise. But if you're an athlete, why do you need to bench more than that? You don't. So can we take the bench press once you've hit something that's relative to you? And can we change it to a little bit more dynamic? Can we get a rotational cable press in there? Um, can we do single arm bench press? Can we put them in a McGill bench press where half the body's off the bench and stabilize through that core? And now we're all of a sudden we're integrating low body with upper body and all of it's to a stable core as well. So it's going to translate onto the field a little bit more. Mm -hmm. That's got to be an easier sell for some kids that, you know, aren't familiar with the weight room as well. Is it for, you know, you're not putting a bar on their back or, or having a bench and, you know, be embarrassed. Um, it's a lot of dumbbell or, or cable work or accessory work as such. I think with back squats, it's a very easy sell because almost every single athlete that I've worked with and I've said, we're not going to back squat, almost all of them have gone, oh my God, I'm so relieved. Mm -hmm. And I asked them why, and so they go, well, the last strength coach had us back squat and everyone's back hurt. And it's like, I think a lot of strength coaches get married to that program where it's either you do the program or you're doing it wrong. And that should never be the case. I think athletes are so not necessarily unique, but they need independent um, needs and focuses from the program. So you can't just lump everyone, in, everyone into a cookie-cutter cookie program. Mm -hmm. um, I've worked with a cheer and dance team over again, and we never back-squatted once, but all of them got stronger, all of them got more stable, and hopefully as we get into the spring, we're going to see less muscle injuries because they've got stronger, but we're not going to have the back injuries that they had before. And obviously that's a unique sport in itself, mobility, stability, demand. Absolutely. Yeah, there's there's a lot of injuries as far as NCAA research goes um, with that sport. Um, you spoke a little bit about how you like to implement Olympic lifts uh, within your training programs. Can you speak for some of um, the progressions or, or some of the cues you would have for uh, 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 an athlete, whether it's you know a men's soccer or a women's soccer player? Um, so what we'll tend to do is we tend to start higher rep range, reduce the rep ranges, as we get further and further into the program, um, because it is such a technical exercise, I think you need the exposure to it early on. So that's why that rep range is high, and then as they get more familiar, we can load them up a little bit more, rather than progressing in any um, unique way. Unfortunately, the only thing we can really do is put more weight on the bar with a hand clean, up until the point where, okay, I think we've done enough strength speed stuff, let's get rid of it and throw in a medicine ball instead so we start working on the other end of the curve where they're throwing a lighter away a little bit quicker and they're getting exposing us to that. So rather than progress the exercise itself, we increase the weight until we've hit the rep range that we're working towards and then it gets removed and we've added different stimulus to them. Um, when you're looking at sort of cues for the hand clean in particular, I always set up the same way, feet hip width apart, toes pointing forward, take a hold of the bar, bend the wrist, nice prayer chest, 
And then the big one is trying to touch the wall behind you with your butt. Give them that external focus to, fo to think about rather than an internal cue. Um, where the research has shown the external cue intent to help a little bit more because it gives them something to think about that does everything that they need to do. So if you tell someone to touch the wall behind you with your butt, they go backwards. And then when you tell them to jump, they get that triple extension at the same time. They get the ankles, the knees, and the hips all locking out exactly the same time because they know how to jump. Whereas if you don't tell them just to jump and you tell them push into the floor with your toes, straighten your legs and throw your hips forward, they've got three things to think about, all of which they might not know. But tell someone to jump, they know how to jump. Oh, that's a fantastic point. Uh, great stuff there. Um, you've spoken a couple of times now about how you um, back up your programs by some of the research that you've read. Um, do you have a typical um, uh, schedule or routine to look into some of the research or um, what are some of the biggest things that you have changed based on, you know, what you're reading or what you're seeing online? Um, when it comes to reading the research, I know a lot of people struggle with this and I'm guilty of it than anyone is when you see a new piece of research going, Oh my God, this is great reading. I need to do this. And you forget everything else you've ever learned just to do this one piece of research. Um, so I think that's one thing that people struggle with and that I know I struggled with a lot early and I still have not as much now, but still struggle with that a little bit where I need to scrap everything that I do mm -hmm. to fit this new piece of research rather than taking a step back and analyzing the research where it came from and uh, other respected professionals in the field using that research for their needs as well. Um, so people like Mike Boyle, if he implements something brand new, it's probably worth looking into. Right. Would he, if there's a piece of research and he comes out and says, there's issues with this research, you know there's probably some sort of issue with that research because he is one of, if not the best in the sports um, strength conditioning setting. Yeah, that makes sense because it, it can be tough at times. Like I've seen firsthand where um, sport athlete will come in and show you their Instagram feed and say, you know, what do you think of this or... Um, yeah, that exercise, it, it can be a challenge. I think with that, one of the big ones was, was it LeBron James doing box jumps? Yeah, it could be. You now there's there's the Bosu ball stuff, and yeah. balance and axe. And there's a lot out there. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> um, um, LeBron James was doing box jumps, and he had I can't remember the height of it, but he had a ridiculously high box that he was jumping on. And it was like really cool because it was LeBron James doing this 60-inch vertical. But if you actually took his center of gravity and see how high he displaced his center of gravity, we have athletes at our gym displacing that center of mass the exact same height. It's just his mobility to get his knees up so high. And again, he's what is he, six foot ten? Uh, he's a crazy specimen. So if he's displacing his center of gravity by 30 inches he's going to be a lot higher up than I would be at 30 inch vertical. Mm -hmm. I think the social media has made it very, very difficult for strength coaches. And I'm sure you know, because people see something online, they want to gravitate straight towards it because it looks cool. Yeah. I, I kind of fell into that myself. Like you, when you were saying about research where you want to implement it right away, I found that after I graduated from undergrad that um, I struggled to keep a consistent program as far as strength training goes. I, I was doing this program for two or three weeks and then I changed it to another program. And it's great experience personally, because you can kind of look back and have different cues for athletes, but 
you're not really going to make much progress with changing programs at, at such a frequency around. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think the biggest thing with any program is consistency. And if you're doing the same thing over and over again, you're going to make progress as long as you're doing it at a consistent rate throughout the week or throughout the day, throughout the week, throughout the month and throughout the year. But if you change every week, how are you supposed to know if you even make progress? Mm-hmm. Yeah. One day it calls for hand cleans for a set of six and the next week you don't touch a hand clean and then the next week you're doing something else and the next week you're doing something else like how do I know if my hand clean's improved because I've not worked on the form of it and I'm I've got nothing to compare with anymore yeah I, I had a lecturer in undergrad that said if you're not assessing you're just guessing and I think that's a, that's a good point it's a great saying um, it's it, um, used quite a lot but it's, it's completely accurate. There's a reason for it. Yeah. Um, just on a personal level, um, you're working with women's soccer and men's soccer at Gannon University. Um, how does that schedule or day-to-day activity look for you? Um, let's let's look forward to the to the next month versus uh, the past year or so with COVID. Um, do you obviously train at separate times, I would assume, or you know, how are you trying to manage that um, workload and that schedule? Um. So going, going back before I go forward, last fall, it was a little bit easier um, just because we were training 5.45 till 8 o'clock at night for the men, 8 till 10 for the women. But 8 a.m. I also had gym sessions with men's soccer and then women's soccer would alternate their days in the gym. So Tuesday, Thursday, um, during the 8 till 10 slot, I was in the weight room with them and we brought the team up in half. Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I'd be either on the field with the goalkeepers and with the team. Um, but a normal day in the fall was chaotic last year because it would be 6 a.m., 6.30 a.m. with women's basketball, 8 a.m. with men's soccer, 9 till 11, office work, go home, eat, work from home a little bit more, doing recruiting, applying to emails, watching goalkeepers, trying to do a little bit more research, trying to write new programs for people, whether it's a team or whether it's an individual person. Then I go over to my other job, work at my other gym, and I work there from 3, 3.30 till 5 o'clock, head straight down to the training field, and be down there till 10. So the times when I'd be gone in a 16-hour period, I'd be home for about an hour. Yeah. And then I think this fall, sorry, this spring, is going to be very similar maybe a little bit less demanding because the basketball team going to have games. So I obviously won't be there for that. Um, and then once we get into the fall with so many teams wanting the facilities, should make it a little bit easier to manage the time and a little bit more free time in between. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I worked for a Division One women's soccer team before, and uh, uh, I also assisted with some other sports. So for me, uh, we played Saturday – or sorry, we played Friday, Sundays – and uh, we trained Saturdays and they had Mondays off. Um, but the issue we got ran into long term was, yeah, we had Mondays off for women's soccer, but that was also when you needed to assist for other teams. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there was September, October. I think Thanksgiving break was the first break or, you know, day off yeah. that I did have in, you know, 10, 15 weeks or so. So it can be yeah. a challenge for um, for some coaches. Yeah, the college setting. As much fun as it is to be in here and to be working with the kids and the athletes and working with different teams, it, it definitely takes its toll. Um, I think from a mental standpoint as well as from a physical standpoint a lot of the time. 
I think trying to deal with that side of things, especially right now, has been it can be incredibly difficult for people. Yeah, no doubt. Um, the last question I have for you, kind of looking forward into the next uh, two to four weeks or so, as far as programming goes, um, what's the main goal for um, men's and women's soccer as far as getting back, returning to play, and trying to deal with some COVID restrictions that you might have on campus or even in the community? So we'll be getting them back at the beginning of February. So we've got a few weeks left now until they come back. Um, and then when they come back, we'll have games um, probably within a month. I'm incredibly fortunate at Gannon that we're able to do our own testing. So everyone will come back and I think the whole school's being tested the first day they arrive. And then everyone's being tested again on day five. So I think the almost the entire school is going to get tested, um, which is going to help out not only the school itself, but within athletics. Absolutely. We know that if anyone tests positive, we can isolate them. And if everyone else is good, we're going to be in small pods for the first week until we get the day five and then we start to integrate them back into a full team setting. Um, I think the first couple of weeks are going to be technical drills, a little bit of fitness, just trying to build them back up a little bit because they know that we're going to have games coming up. So hopefully they've been looking after themselves in this, in this Christmas break. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Like we did say, that winter period and summer period is key. And um, just ha- having accountability and trust in your players is a big deal. So, you know, hopefully they're making the most opportunity. I think the, the winter's a little bit harder just because in a normal year, you finish your season, you go home, you know you don't have a preseason with the same intensity as you had in the summer. So it's very easy to sort of fall off the wagon over that Christmas period when you're at home with your family, with friends, especially for the international kids, as you know, like you get to go home for the first time and the second time. You haven't been home for a year. You don't really feel like doing a whole lot of running because you want to be with your friends and seeing people. So, mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, it was a challenge. I think my uh, second year, I had almost six or seven weeks at home. And that was a bit of a setback when you do get back in, into your routine, you know, in February. So Three weeks at home. It's good because it's not too long that you start to let your training fall off. Mm-hmm. But you get to see everyone. But when you're there and it's only three weeks, it feels like it's such a short range of time that you wish you had more. But when you have more and you get back, all of a sudden you realize that seven, eight weeks probably wasn't the best thing for you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, Danny, I appreciate you coming on the show today. Thank you. Like I said, thanks for having me, Kev. Great talking to you again. That is it for episode 11 of the Training Ground Podcast with Danny. Hope you had a couple of takeaways. Looking forward to seeing Danny's team's progress, especially next fall, considering they did not get the opportunity to play this year. If you do want to follow Danny on Instagram, his account is DannyLoughton1. My own account is at StrengthCoachKev. Danny can also be contacted by email at Loughton001 at Gannon.edu, so G-A-N-N. O-N dot E-D-U. Talk to you soon.